In every generation, there is a chosen one. She alone will stand against the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. She is the Slayer. This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Are we recording? You're rolling? <laughs> you've, been, you've been rolling for the last Roll the tape? Okay, well, for the record, we're going to get poutine immediately after this. Great. Together. Together. Because we're in Montreal. Together. 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 <laughs> Welcome back to In Sickness. Have you missed us? We're here together with several thousand fruit flies. To celebrate the birth of the one, the only, Maya. It's me. It's my birthday. <laughs> Angelique's here in Canada doing incredible research. Aww. And now we can bring you a special holiday-themed episode. And we don't mean normal holidays. <laughs> we mean our favorite holiday, <laughs> Halloween. Spooky Halloween. So spooky. And so, <laughs> we have a theme today. We're taking a little bit of a different approach. Our topic is vampires. And while we could, between the two of us, talk to you about the entirety of Buffy the Vampire Slayer completely from memory, instead we're going to talk about the journey of the myth and the different diseases that lend themselves to it, stuff that's like almost definitely on topic for this podcast. It's going to get very literary. It's going to get very pop culture. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a really bad job with the history and instead talk about <laughs> all of the stuff we've made up about vampires. I'm going to start by talking about what really are vampires, which is a very misleading question. There's obviously so many different mythologies and folklores and stories that go around vampirism. But its origins come mostly from Europe, and they refer to a demon or a body or a being of some sort that survived by feeding off of human blood. So when you're using this definition of a vampire, they're super Eurocentric. Like that version of a vampire really only exists in Europe. But there are mythological creatures across Africa and Asia, other parts of the world that share certain elements. So like maybe they feed off the blood of humans or animals. Maybe they have special flying powers like a succubus. Like there's a sort of elements. They fly? I never knew that. I mean, sometimes they like a Dracula bat kind of thing, Ooh. you know? I think that one key element of vampire in like our version, like what we grew up with, is that they can like live with human beings, walk among us, obviously not in daylight, but they can like exist with humans. And then they have additional special powers. So sometimes it's shape-shifting, like the bat thing. Sometimes it's mind control. Sometimes, like, basically they're impossible to kill. So they're almost like chameleon. They infiltrate human society. Yes. At least the modern version of the Eurocentric vampire. Yeah. Infiltrates human society and passes as one of us in order to feed and convert others. Yes. A demon who walks amongst us. Unless you're talking about, like, the... Listen, there's all these extra types of vampires in literature and whatever, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, right? Like, obviously, they've all got slightly different powers, like Twilight, they sparkle. We don't like to talk about that kind of nonsense, whatever. It's important, I think, also, especially since we're a disease podcast, that we should talk about how people kill vampires. The classics. 
decapitation, stake through the heart, burning, sunlight, holy water. You can tell that they're a vampire by their lack of mirrored reflection, their aversion to garlic. And another one that I had heard of, that I hadn't heard of that I read about is a way of killing a vampire is that you bury someone that you suspect has been converted to being a vampire with a brick or a rock in their mouth or under their chin and it stops them from, I guess, chewing on people. And they called them the, the chewing dead. Surely not. Surely yes. Oh. Just bubblegum vampires. <laughs> that makes me think of Harmony from Buffy. Can I relate everything we talk about today to Buffy? Yes. Yes. I'm just going to take this moment to say that I have spent all of the month of October so far reading vampire things. It's like Actually, all vampire themed. I've been re I've been doing a Bram Stoker's Dracula reread. <laughs> I've been um, just like reading all of this fun supernatural fiction. It's been a really good time. So we were finally tuned and ready for this. So where do we get the word vampire? It seems to stem from the word upir, but it's like really hard to trace the etymology back super specifically. So upir is present in a lot of Slavic languages, and it was known as this sort of beast, very similar to a vampire that fed on blood and it was an undead thing, but it could walk around in daylight. They also seem to have had more desire for blood than vampires. So not just like, oh, I need to take some blood now and then to survive. It was like obsession with blood, like eating the heart, bathing and sleeping in pools of blood, like very gruesome. It may have come from a Turkish word for witch because they had a very similar mythology around Upir. And those rumors may also have come from the early Orthodox Church in the 1100s, referring to those who had turned away from God or religion and were therefore affiliated with the devil. So as Maya just mentioned, this Slavic word, Upir or Vampir, first popped up in like 800 to 1,000 years ago. And what I read was that it was actually used as a slur against any group of people, um, like basically for, uh, for believing a certain thing. Um, we're not too sure what those beliefs are, um, <laughs> but we do think that it might have something to do with blood sacrifice, actually, um, and was a means of marginalizing pagans. Oh. So in pagan ritual, and actually in early Christianity, you might have a priest there, but you'd still be like slaughtering your ox or whatever. And the problem that they had with this ritual sacrifice wasn't necessarily anything to do with the blood. Um, it was about the belief that they didn't accept, and they often went about discrediting people for uh, the revelry that surrounded the sacrifice oh, because it was trick. hedonistic and because oh. uh, they, they could like accuse them of licentiousness. And you actually have something in the oration of St. Gregory, which is given in the cathedral at Sophia. And like you have a 15th century account of it that like condemns Slavs for their worship of and sacrifice to pagan gods and demons. And they actually specifically mention vampires. Whoa. Right? That's cool. It's a cool thing. I feel so, like also that thread goes all the way through with like the church being like the devil possesses you, vampires, you're the opposite yes, of us. But the church says the devil possesses you, but only in this super specific way that we <laughs> accept. And we will stamp out everything else that we consider folklore or superstition. Okay. So in terms of like the etymology of the word vampire, 
We're not sure if this oration of St. Gregory thing means that the vampire was directly tied to the supernatural at this point, but it's certainly tied to heresy. So according to one academic I read, begin quote, (laughs) (laughs) the original vampire was affiliated in some way with one or all of the groups whose beliefs the church tried to eradicate, Jews, pagans, and heretics. Oh, I did not know that there was a vampire mythology associated with like Judaism. Along, I mean, I'm all familiar with the horns. And I the whatnot. think it's just another way to scapegoat. And actually, there are a lot of parallels between uh, vampirism accusations and and witchcraft. Interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting how we always land on scapegoating. Always. I think it's because mm. it's a disease podcast. You know. <laughs> Maybe. I would just like to say that it's really nice to talk about really gruesome, bloody elements of history while gazing deeply into one another's eyes while trying to keep six inches away from the same mic and drinking a soothing cup of tea. It adds yes. like a nice element. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So continuing on with the word vampire, in the early 1700s, so significantly after Oration of St. Gregory, the word vampire becomes more common in the French, English, and German language. It seems like it is somehow a result of Austria gaining land around Serbia and publishing accounts of people exhuming and decapitating vampires, which was just like very a la mode over there for some reason. Specifically, there was like an official command from the royal family to do these two very famous exhumations, which I won't go into detail about. And the accounts of those exhumations were widely received by the general population, and it gave birth to a new vampire frenzy, both a fear of and a fascination with. And we'll sort of talk about that in relation to disease in a bit. I would just like to point out, lest you think we're just indulging ourselves in vampires because we love vampire mythology, around 1732, news reports began to be published about vampire epidemics. Yay! Uh, On brand. (laughs) So the entire 18th century, this like whole period is filled with vampire controversy and people are really obsessed with vampires and they think they're everywhere and it leads naturally into the birth of vampire fiction, which by the way, basically the first piece of vampire fiction was essentially erotica. Not shocking. And I will let Angeliki speak more about that. And then I will come back to discuss the diseases surrounding vampirism and where some of this may have originated. Surprise, surprise, people in early modern Europe talked about the undead a lot, (laughs) like constantly. (laughs) So what Maya's just uh, talked about, this vampire epidemic in Eastern Europe, I'm instead going to call an epidemic of fear about vampirism in some villages of Eastern Europe. Very good. Yes, so these took place in the in the 18th century, and while there were certain official responses on behalf of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that seemed to <laughs> confirm the beliefs of these people, they also did a sort of systematic program of re-education to try oh. and stamp out these folk beliefs. Oh. Yeah, and try to try to keep everyone from. Um, disinterring their dead there are actually like a lot of theological treatises by european elites about the undead so about for example why and how the devil might reanimate corpses therefore or against the reanimation of corpses there are debates Mm. about whether it took place how it could have taken place a little bit of necromancy what the purpose is it's generally framed in like a 
Christian religious thing. So you get like a Jesuit priest being like, this is nonsense. Um, Ooh, I saw a really good article that was talking about how like people were saying, okay, well, vampires die and then they don't like rot. And then people were like, okay, but same for saints. Exactly. There's some big parallels there. Love right? it. And again, big trend for us on this podcast, it depends on the individual involved. Mm. So if a holy, righteous, well-behaved person who fits the mold doesn't rot and doesn't swell and doesn't decompose in the same way that a, a normal dead body should, they're a saint. If it's a person on the margins of society who's not necessarily mm. accepted by their community, different story. Got Definitely it. a vampire. We Got must it. brick them. All that to say, it's a super contentious, super bitter theological debate. And it turns out that the Vatican, much like the Austro-Hungarians, implemented a similar program of quote-unquote enlightenment to stamp out this folklore and superstition. And I actually saw that it was it was partly to avoid accusations of vampirism in the clergy, like the high-ranking clergy. I mean, they I wear mean, dark robes, you... they hide inside all day. Yes. Although they do use a lot of holy water. So yeah, uh, belief in vampires or the undead, shockingly, uh, reflects contemporary anxieties about illness, death, premature burial, which, as it turns out, is a really big fear. And the rich in the 18th and 19th centuries would actually install uh, a bell at their tomb. I was hoping you were going to talk yes, about the grave of bells. Of course, I'm going to talk about the grave bells. And this is so that in case they were mistaken for dead, they could ring the bell, which actually it strikes me if vampires were real, would be a really, really useful way to get out of the tomb. So I was wondering, did those things cross over at any point? Like, was that where people were like, I want a bell because what if I'm not dead? And mm. other people were like, yeah, but how do I know you're not a vampire? Like, were those intersecting, do you think? No, I don't think so. Right, fine. I think it's more that like the metaphor of the vampire helps people work out these anxieties about like what happens if I don't stay dead? Right. Like what happens if I not only don't stay dead, but I'm damned? Let's not forget a bunch of religious people in Europe at this True. time. Just saying would have been a funny throwback episode of Buffy. So modern narratives about vampires. And when I say modern, remember I'm talking post 1800. Mm -hmm. These are actually narratives about illness. So vampirism bloodborne pathogen oh. mm -hmm. uh, it spreads from individual to individual so evidence of contagion and it makes these individuals who are infected both predatory and infectious to others mm -hmm. and it causes symptoms which can identify the individual so i'm gonna give you now a quick synopsis of dracula by yes. bram stoker just because i've been reading it the book is structured as a series of first-hand first -hand accounts of events. It's like vignettes. So you've got uh, Jonathan Harker's journal, Mina Harker's journal, and then the diary of, uh, of a doctor in a psychiatric ward. And then you get letters from random people or like a captain's log. And then you see the various contacts that these people have had with Count Dracula or one of his minions. And they're recording all of these disconnected events that to them, I mean, out of context, weird, mm. but maybe I'm just going crazy. He's like the Jon Snow of vampires. Yes. He is the Jon Snow. Snow. 
Okay. All right. So (laughs) all of these stories are separate, but when the story reaches the climax, that's when the characters begin to compare their journals and notes. So there's a situation, there's a crisis, and um, in the wake of the death of someone uh, who's much loved of all of them, they get together and start talking and start trying to figure out what's happening. And they compare all of their journals and notes and they create this body of evidence. So that's how they come to the incredible conclusion that they're dealing with vampires. So they draw up a list of symptoms of the person who died and behaviors, which are helpfully diagnosed by the resident foreigner, who's Dr. Van Helsing. Which ah. I'm sure most people wow, know that I name. I need to reread. It's the... really good, and I would highly recommend it on audiobook, just because like you get the different voices. It really makes sense. It, it works really well. So this association between vampire and disease, it's an 18th century construction, and it really seeks to medicalize irrational beliefs and anxieties, specifically this time about vampires. But 19th century literature brings this whole new dimension to its pop culture offering. So it brings concerns about sexuality and venereal disease, debates over miasma and germ theory, contagion itself, and the effects of disease on the socioeconomic and, in fact, moral status of the patient. Mm. So you get all of that in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Wow. And if you have questions about those, please feel free to listen to uh, many, if not all, of our past So arguably the four most important literary literary texts that shaped how we currently view vampires are John Polidori's The Vampire and fun fact, the idea for this book came from a storytelling competition that was held at Lord Byron's villa on Lake Geneva. It's like a scary story competition between Polidori, who's actually the physician of Lord Byron, Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Lord Byron. And this is also the the storytelling competition where she comes up with what later, where Mary Shelley comes up with what later becomes Frankenstein. Oh, sounds yeah. like a good night. It's all coming together. And John Polidori's The Vampire is actually the first vampire story. The second text, James Malcolm Reimer's Varney, The Vampire, and then Sheridan Le Fenu's Carmilla. And then you've got Bram Stoker's Dracula, obviously. And hilariously, two of these books contain characters that are repurposed in another vampire book that I'm currently reading, which is called Strange Practice. And it's about, I guess, a descendant of Van Helsing, who's like Dr. Greta Helsing, and she's physician to the supernatural community of London. And it's amazing. It's so cute. So increasingly pop culture, and by that I mean modern film, Um, associates vampirism with disease, but also with medicine and technology. So I have a little quote here from another book I read by Stacey Abbott called Undead Apocalypse, Vampire and Zombies in the 21st Century, (laughs) which is just a really good time. And it makes the point that Nosferatu, the film, was made only a few years after the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, which spread from the US and Europe through to Africa and Asia, killing between 20 and 50 million people. See our first ever episode. <laughs> and Nosferatu uses rats and the lead actor's own rodent-like appearance, a bit harsh, um, to associate vampirism with the spread of plague. And in 1985, mm. the argument that the rare disease porphyria was the root influence upon the belief in vampires was first posited by the scientist Dr. David H. Dolphin. And it's actually, yeah, it's actually been debunked, um, but the association continues to exist. And the author also points out that vampirism serves as a metaphor for disease. I would argue that vampirism is literally a disease in these things. Okay. 
I would more, agree. It's more of a metaphor for everything else. I mean, the vampire is infected by disease, but it also spreads disease. Mm-hmm. The disease functions, functions within these stories as a way to express cultural fears, I think. Anyway. So yeah, uh, and this book that I used actually sees the development of vampire and zombie fiction as parallel, and the wider point of it is that it reflects 21st century concerns about the apocalypse through pandemic that causes humanity to consume itself. A couple more um, vampire movies, just because I wanted to. (laughs) Well, I don't think we realize actually how pervasive vampires are in our pop culture. They are everywhere. For example, Underworld. High-tech vampires are on a quest for a super hybrid, like, werewolf vampire thing. Something you recommended to me, I believe. Yes. Yes. As a rage movie. I love it. And it's actually this, like, technology. It's, it's like, genetic experiments, basically, that are developed as a military weapon. Do you remember? I do. Yeah. I remember more the kicking and punching, but I do, yeah. That poor John Corbin. (laughs) He really got it. Uh, A couple more titles. Daybreakers, I Am Legend, Blade, Buffy, obviously. Obviously. (laughs) The list goes on. Not sure where Twilight fits in, but I'm pretty sure they use vampire blood to heal people pretty frequently. So I will uh, pass it on to you. Okay. So let's go back a couple steps. Like, talk about the myth, talk about the how this fits in with our idea of like epidemics and disease. First of all, let's just think about the context that we so often discuss, which is like a time before people understood bacteria and, you know, how diseases were spread and they used miasma theory. So in that time, you can see how it would be totally horrifying if somebody fell ill and died from a disease that you didn't understand. And then everybody who was close to them also slowly started to get sick and die. What? You mean like (laughs) TB? Correct. Or like Bram Stoker's Dracula, where you have a bunch of people who are related related by like one point of intersection. Mm -hmm. When you start to see that intersection, but you don't understand how like disease spreads, you might be like, I'm freaking out, man. I mean, that that is a particularly good example of like people thinking through miasma theory. Yeah. The disease is immediately preceded by this weird fog that seems to move around of its own volition and that fog is the vampire nice that is a good one thank you very good yeah but in so in that situation when it's the sick person that you know and then you start to get sick you might think that the person was the cause not the actual illness or perhaps you might think that that person had never really truly died at all and was still sort of going around wreaking havoc Mm -hmm. so you can sort of see how maybe the idea of mysterious disease could lead to this concept of vampires. Absolutely, yeah. And as different diseases and epidemics spread across Europe, they were often accompanied by a noticeable increase in vampire mythology and fear, which led to a lot of the exhuming of corpses and different strategies to avoid it that you have sort of already talked about. And there are a lot of different diseases that might have contributed to that original vampire myth on top of this sort of flip side of diseases in general contributing to the thought that vampires existed. Um, and it can't really be attributed to one. And like you said, many of those diseases were debunked largely because people didn't really know about them or they didn't really exist very much in the time period when we know vampires were first being discussed. But I think that there are a lot of connections with certain diseases and certain points in time where people were associating them with vampirism. So it might not be the total origin, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of relationships to the myth. So let's go over a couple of these. So first of all, rabies. 
I personally have always associated it with werewolves. Right, because dogs. Right? Yes. But, you know, when you start to dig into it, you totally get it. You foam at the mouth. You become aggressive. And, of course, it is spread through biting. Classic vampire. And then it also creates an aversion to sunlight. Does it really? I did not know. I didn't know that. And that's obviously a big element of vampires. And it gives you an aversion to very strong scents, such as perhaps garlic. Great. Little touch of COVID. Yeah. Great. Another good one's pelagra. And I had never heard of this before. So it is a dietary deficiency, which often accompanies diets of mostly corn. So if you're not preparing certain types of corn properly, it's like a nitrous wash or something, you're at risk of getting this disease called pellagra. And it causes what this article called the four Ds, which I love. (laughs) The four Ds are dermatitis, dementia, diarrhea, and death. The dermatitis element means that people who are sick are hypersensitive to the sun. They start to blister. They get scabs. If that happens too many times, your skin becomes parchment-like, very pale and thin. Classic. Then the dementia of sorts sets in. So you get really irritable. You don't sleep well at night. You get insomnia and you develop pica, which is that thing where you want to just like eat random things to satisfy (laughs) strange cravings. And for people with pellagra, it was recorded that It's commonly things like vinegar or lots of spice, but it also could be flies or spiders. Ooh, foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. And then you get diarrhea, and the diarrhea leads to you getting very thin, and you don't want to eat a lot or eat around other people because you're afraid you're going to get diarrhea, and then, of course, you die, the the fourth D. So don't want to pick and choose the different symptoms, but that does leave you with a very pale, sun-sensitive insomniac who eats spiders and doesn't share meals with other human beings. So like, I get it. (laughs) It makes sense. And what I liked about this is like, okay, so do I think it's connected with the origin of the vampire myth? No, not a great deal of corn eating back then. But both of those diseases were epidemic in Europe during that original great vampire craze in the early 1700s. So that sort of 1725 to 1755 era. So when this thing was blowing up and people across Europe were being really horrified at the vampire myth and it was really spreading from Eastern to Western Europe, so were these two diseases. I like it. I don't know. It could be related. One might feed the other. I mean, I'm sure it didn't help things at (laughs) all in any way. No. So then there's also porphyria, which you mentioned, and that is called a vampire syndrome. So that seems like kind of a gimme. So it comes from a sort of set of natural chemicals in your body that build up over time called porphyrins, I think. That's how I would have said it. (laughs) Fantastic. And they're related to the function of your hemoglobin and hemoglobin is red blood cells. So like we're already on a really good path here. Obviously people didn't know that at the time, but whatever. So first, it makes you very sensitive to sunlight. Then it causes loose stool with blood in it and urine with blood in it, which apparently made people think that you had just been drinking blood. It can make your skin very pale. And this is really interesting. It it can tighten, I think, because you're getting gaunt and losing so much weight, but it specifically tightens around your mouth. Ah. So it like lifts up your lips. I hate that. And then you can see your pointy little canines more. So it makes you look like you have these like creepy pointed blood sucking teeth. I hate that. Isn't it horrifying? So, okay, porphyria is not that 
common. It is quite rare, which I think is part of the reason that it was sort of debunked as an origin story. But you can see how if you met someone like this, especially because the disease often causes like odd and manic behavior and an aversion to garlic, that seems oddly specific. I'm not sure I buy it. But right, like you can see if you met somebody like that in like 1725, you'd be like, uh, you're undead. So obvious parallels. And then I also want to talk about the psychological elements. And this is one that you, I know, love and brought up. So first off, okay, clinical vampirism, that's commonly known as Renfield's syndrome. I just love the idea that a book about vampires inspired a psychological syndrome. Incredible. It becomes from a specific guy named Renfield, who was just obsessed with the idea of drinking blood. But is he a literary character? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No, I fully didn't He's know He's a that. character in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh! He's the, the guy in the asylum. He's that. enthralled to Dracula. He's like his little helper. Oh, Except that's he hilarious. Kind no, of has, done a thing on he that. kind of has a change of heart because he doesn't like that Dracula's going after Nina Harker, who's um, like this really good oh. Christian woman. And so it's... He's like obsessed with consuming other life forms, like spiders, flies. See, all I can rats. think of is Xander in Buffy. So when that he's was under the, the joke. thrall of Dracula. That was the joke. He okay. became Renfield. Wow, that went right over my head. Oh my god, you need to you need okay, to reread rereading it. Dracula. Great. And then you need to watch the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode I'll about Dracula. Because how good is that scene? One, so two, good. three. Yes. Yes. Even if you don't watch Buffy, you should watch the episode of Buffy where Dracula appears. <clears throat> anyway, clinical vampirism. Because <laughs> that's cooler. Uh, did not know Renfield syndrome was related. That's on me. It is now associated with just like this obsession with drinking blood. So can be the same or related to hematomania, which is just like a fancy psychologist way of saying somebody read the book Dracula and really wants to drink blood, I think. But it's just, it's the same, same. It's the uncontrollable desire to drink blood. So while it is not listed in the DSM, it is something that manifests rarely as like people becoming very violent, having a deep-seated desire to drink blood or eat living meat and some other neat little creepy things. Great. The other one that I knew you were going to get excited about that is related to vampirism is Cotard's delusion. Mm. One of your faves. <laughs> so Cotard's delusion can manifest in many ways, but you basically think that you are dead, dying, or missing key parts of your body, but you're just still walking around, which has a lot of similarities to being a vampire. So closing out the diseases, I want to talk a wee bit about the modern day vampire. Obviously, lots of different versions, not just the literature, the movies, the TV, all this stuff that Angel talked about, lots of popular culture, but there's also this like weird new modern mythology. Like there are still teens and adults who just totally idolize vampires way past what we do having watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. There are vampire associations and they have all these rules about drinking human blood so that you don't get hep C or HIV or whatever. Like, I don't know. It's like a modern day thing that they're like, we're not goth. We're not crazy. We're just vampires. Like it's a lifestyle basically that still exists. There's all these modern day elements where people truly still feel this like connection with the idea of being a vampire mm -hmm. in many ways because of that, I think not the same like negative heretical creature of the dark that it once no. was. Even more recently, like there's a big difference between like Nosferatu mm -hmm. 
and some of the more modern things that we come across. And this wouldn't be uh, my section of the show if I didn't talk about colonialism. Super quick. I just want to touch on the fact that like vampires and vampirism, very Eurocentric, but there are still vampirism rumors across Sub-Saharan Africa and they unsurprisingly came with colonialism. So this sort of, they brought over their mythology, but it is also associated with the indigenous populations in terms of colonial medical practices. So basically colonialists, European colonialists brought vampire mythology and rumors with them but they expanded to a new form of rumors <laughs> so excited my favorite topic <laughs> so it expanded to this whole new form of rumor about vampirism amongst indigenous populations that basically were associated with like not your old school horror movie vampires it's like normal people roaming around with like syringes and knives to steal your blood Whoa. In places like Malawi, Mozambique, these rumors are like totally rampant. They're often affiliated with witchcraft rumors and with other terrible things, right? So if there is a drought or the crops fail or there's a plague, then, you know, there's witches and vampires on the loose. But the people whom the rumors fixate on are like getting murdered and like roadblocks get set up in the roads so that you can stop people and check and make sure they're not this like weird modern syringe holding vampire that's going to come and steal your baby's blood. It is like clearly deep seated in the medical mispractice and manipulation that colonial people did to the people, indigenous peoples of those countries. Like they were testing them medically they were injecting them with stuff they were testing their blood they were putting them in like medical concentration camps and so there's an obvious parallel between that and this like terrible myth and rumor to be honest if you're someone whose community has been through something like that like the forced medicalization of your bodies by some alien person then actually it's not so far-fetched that the vampire is going to come and suck your blood actually It's like all the more terrifying because it is so like real and valid and like rooted in neocolonialism and um, medical experimentation. So not a bright finishing note, but just really interesting that there are all these new rumors that are really damaging about vampires Mm -hmm. and how they operate and like how they live and work and what their purpose is. To be honest, I'm just thrilled that I got to mention zombies and talk about vampires (laughs) This is fun. This was very fun. What's your fucking hooray? You're here. We're yeah. here together. Oh my God. That was mine too. What a ridiculous <laughs> question. What do you think my hooray is? <laughs> okay. No, it's a, it's a bigger hooray than that. Yeah. My hooray is that I'm back home for the first time in nearly two years. I'm finally able to finish up my doctoral research and I'm finding stuff and it's really interesting Ooh. and I'm getting to reconnect with my friends and my family. Oh Guys, my we're hugging. Yeah. <laughs> so I have so many that are basically the same, which is that I am here, my favorite person, in one of my favorite cities, recording our podcast live. So much has changed. Like I went back to school. You came here to do research. All these amazing things. And we're like, it's still a pandemic. Let's be real. And yet we still managed to orchestrate like a safe, comfortable, happy way to share a space, and that makes me very happy. Hooray for vaccination! Hooray! And 
podcasting and for gosh so many things yeah but yeah i'm happy i'm happy too okay thank you good night thank you goodbye see you soon sorry for the long delay sound guy help help thank you for listening to in sickness researched and hosted by angeliki and maya intro track and logo by adrian morningstar sound editing by maya